Our sermon today is taken from Romans 8, 1 through 11. Here's the word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Thus says the Lord. Okay, friends, we are continuing in our series, the book of Romans today, and we're at chapter 8 now. And just a quick note, after we're done with chapter 8, we're going to take a break from the book of Romans, and we're going to go through a sermon series on marriage and singleness. Okay, and I know we don't usually do series like this. We did before uh, with the priesthood of all believers, uh, and we're going to do it again with marriage and singleness now. We usually we go through whole books in the Bible, but in our last elders meeting, we did think that for this particular time, it would be helpful uh, for us all to be reminded of the beauty of both marriage and singleness and how it is we're called to navigate faithfully in those two seasons of our lives. Okay, I know that's uh, exciting for some of you, but... Let's not check out of Romans quite yet and finish up chapter 8 this next few weeks because we are at the point of the book where many have described to be the highest mountain peak of the whole book. or Others have described it to be the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies of, of the letter of Romans here in chapter 8. And I think it's been described like that not because it's more important than the previous parts of books or anything like that, but because Paul here gives us a summary or a conclusion of sorts of everything he's been talking about for the past seven chapters. You know, look at, look at verse 1. Paul starts by saying, therefore, or so then, you know, here's a summary. You know, I've been talking about the Christian faith for the past seven chapters. Therefore, so then, here's a summary. Here's what it means to be a Christian. That, that's what Paul describes here. And I find this description of a Christian to be helpful because today I think there is a lot of misunderstanding of what it means to be Christian. When someone says, I'm a Christian, I think what most people hear, if if they're unfamiliar with the Bible, is that the person is saying this, I believe that a higher power loves me, and because of that, I try to do good things with a good attitude. If somebody's unfamiliar with the Bible and they hear somebody say, I'm a Christian, I think that's kind of what they think they're saying. I think they think they're saying that 
they're a Christian because they believe in a higher power that loves them, and because of that, they do good things with a good attitude. But as we said in this passage, Paul clarifies it for us, and then we'll clearly see that that is not what Paul says a Christian is. A Christian, which is my three points for today, a Christian isn't someone who just believes that a higher power loves them, point one, but a Christian is someone who has been made holy by the triune God, okay? And a Christian, my second point, isn't just someone who does good things, but a Christian is someone who does good things unto this triune God. And a Christian, my third point, isn't just someone who internally has a good attitude, but someone who internally possesses the spirit of this triune God. Okay, so a Christian is someone who has been made holy by the triune God to do good works unto the triune God, because in them resides the spirit of this triune God. And here's, here's Paul's main goal here for, for Romans chapter 8. Paul wants you, Christian, to, to really know just how solid your salvation is, okay? And, and he does this by really clarifying who you actually are and what has actually happened to you when you got saved, okay? That, that's kind of his goal here. So, so let's jump in and, and start our first point. A Christian is not someone who just believes in a higher power, but someone who has been made holy by the triune God, all right? So I'm, I'm going to get a bit technical here in this point, but if we do the hard work here in verses 1 to 4, I really think it's going to help us make sense of verses 5 to 11, okay? Look at verse 1. Paul, first off, describes a Christian as someone who now has no condemnation, okay? And, you know, that really is what it means for a person to be made holy. It's now to no longer have any condemnation for the sins that they have committed, for the sins they are committing, and for the sins that they will commit. They've been made holy. They've been set free. They've been set apart, okay? Um, no condemnation, zero. You know, and some people may hear this and say that's it's coming off a bit strong, isn't it? Really? N none? Zero? Well, yeah, that, that's what the word no here means in verse 1. Paul didn't say not much condemnation. Paul didn't say less condemnation. Paul didn't say Christian is now somebody who has little condemnation. Paul said no condemnation. And if Christians were to just take that small word no more seriously... I really do think they'll find in it a universe of comforts. No condemnation. But how can Paul say that? You know, there's now no condemnation. Is it because the Christian's any better than anyone else? No. Look at the end of verse 1. It's because of Christ Jesus. Remember uh, last week I gave this analogy of how Liam, my two-year-old boy, uh, threw the TV remote on the floor and, and broke it. <laughs> and how I use that kind of to describe how we often break God's commandments. If you're wondering how the story continues, I, uh, I forgave Liam, right? There's now therefore no more condemnation for Liam. I didn't make him pay for the TV remote, right? It didn't come out of his, you know, college school budget, as if we have one. The point is he didn't pay, right? I didn't, I didn't make him pay for it. It was free. There's now no condemnation for Liam. But you know what? Someone did pay. I did. Okay, I had to buy a new TV remote, overpriced as it might be. <laughs> Liam didn't. He was forgiven. There's no condemnation for him. But you see, forgiveness, it's never free. Someone always pays, either the one offending or the offended. Why can a Christian can have 
no condemnation. Why is a Christian forgiven? Because Jesus paid for it on the cross. That, that's Paul's point here in verse 1. Jesus gets the credit for our salvation. But then Paul continues in verse 2, and we see here it's not just Jesus that gets the credit for our salvation. Someone else does as well. Who? Look at verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Okay, Paul here in verse 2 says that the Holy Spirit also gets credit for his salvation. He's, what? Set you free. In other words, he's set you apart. He's made you holy. Okay, so the credit here goes to the Holy Spirit too. And here's where we get a bit technical, okay? If you read the Bible closely, you'll quickly see that the Holy Spirit has been doing this throughout history. He's always been in the business of setting things apart, of making things holy. That's why he's called the Holy Spirit, right? Think about uh, Moses' staff, okay? Uh, why do you think Moses' shepherd's staff in Exodus was special? You know, God said, lift it up, and then a sea would part. You know, God said, lift it up, and then battles would be won. Why was it special? Was it because Moses carved the wood out of some kind of special magical tree somewhere? No. You see in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 11 to 12, it's because the Holy Spirit went upon the right hand of Moses that was holding the staff. Moses' staff, in other words, wasn't special in itself. It was special because the Holy Spirit came upon it and set it apart for holy use. Why do you think the Old Testament temple was special? You know, only the priest can enter, and if he's unclean, he'd die. You know, why was it special like that? Is it because the wood or the gold or the stones used to make it was dug up from some kind of special magical place? No, they're just wood, gold, and stones. But who came upon the temple in the Old Testament? The Holy Spirit did. Mary's womb. Was it special? Absolutely. Are you kidding me? It birthed Jesus, God in flesh right? The promised Messiah. Mary's womb was special. But why? Was it because her womb was better compared to any other human wombs? No. It was a normal human womb. How then did it become special? Well, let me read to you Luke chapter 1, verse 34 or 35. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. It was special because the Holy Spirit came upon it and set it apart for holy use. So, Christian, here's how all this helps you make more sense of your salvation from Romans chapter 8, verse 2. Just like Moses' staff was no better than any other staff, and just like the stones of the Old Testament was no better than any other stones to make the temple. And just like Mary's womb was no better than any other human womb, you too, Christian, are no better than anyone else. Why are you set apart? Why are you made holy? Because, verse 2, the Holy Spirit came upon you and did unto you what he's been doing throughout history. He sets things apart for holy use. He set you free. In other words, God didn't set you apart because you were special. You're special because God set you apart. You and I 
would have found the message of the cross to be absolutely repulsive, if not the Holy Spirit setting us apart in the first place. The only reason why we accepted what God the Son did, the only reason why we found the cross to be beautiful, the only reason why we believe in it is because the Holy Spirit first set us free, set us apart. You see, so, so Paul is adding to the list here in verse 1, Jesus gets the credit for accomplishing our salvation. And in verse 2, the Holy Spirit gets the credit for freeing us to then receive this salvation. But then he continues on in verse 3, you see another person getting the credit for our salvation. Who is it? God the Father. Let's look at verse 3. For God, referring to God the Father here, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Who gave up Jesus the son unto a cross? God the Father did. Do you see the Trinitarian activity at work here in saving you? You know, we don't get to claim any credit for it. And now to bring it all together, we go to verse 4, which kind of connects everything in place, okay? But let me just recap quickly before bringing it all together in verse 4, okay? Verse 1, the Son accomplished your salvation and paid the cost of your forgiveness on the cross. Why? So that verse 2, the Holy Spirit can set you apart and make you holy. But why can't the Holy Spirit just set me apart like he did Moses' staff and the Old Testament temple, you know, and things like that? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? He didn't have to die on the cross for Moses' staff, you know? Well, because Moses' staff never disobeyed God. <laughs> Moses' staff never sinned. You and I have, you see. And if the Holy Spirit just simply set us apart like he did Moses' staff without first dealing with our sin, he'd be unrighteous. He'd be unholy. And the Holy Spirit cannot be unholy. That's why, verse 3, God the Father had to send God the Son to take on the likeness of sinful flesh, meaning to be one of us, to be a human being, and to die in our place. Why? Verse 4, so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled. You see how it all works together? See, many Christians, I think, don't, don't realize this, that when you become a Christian, all this is actually happening behind the curtains. See, what you experience, you know, is you saying or praying or thinking the words, I accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, or, or something like that. And that did happen, you know. But what the Bible actually claims happened behind the curtains is that God the Spirit set you free from sin and death under the basis of what God the Son did on the cross who was sent by God the Father in heaven. That's, that's what happened. The whole thing, Paul is saying here, was a production that was written by, executed by, and paid for by the triune God. The whole thing. Okay, now that we've understood verses 1 to 4, I think this will help clarify verses 5 to 8, which is our second point. Okay, a Christian is not just someone who does good deeds in general, but someone who does good things for the glory of this triune God who redeemed them, who saved them. Okay, so point one, a Christian is someone who has been made holy by the triune God. Point two, to do good works unto the triune God, okay? All right, verses 5 to 8. Now, if, if all you do 
is read verses 5 to 8 without first understanding verses 1 to 4, Paul in verses 5 to 8 is going to sound like a really ignorant person to you, okay? Because it's going to sound like he's saying, you know, Christians are people who can do good things, and non-Christians are people who can't do good things. That's what it's going to sound like he's saying. Okay, let me just read it to you, verses 5 to 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Okay, so what we hear here is that Christians are those who have been set apart by the Spirit, been set free. Okay, got that. And they can, because of that, live according to the Spirit. They can do good things. Okay, and then you read verses 7 to 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So on the other side, it's easy to think that, you know, Christians are people who can do good things in the spirit, but, you know, non-Christians, you know, who are still in the flesh, they can't do anything good. If you don't understand verses 1 to 4, that's what verses 5 to 8 is going to sound like. The Christian is somebody who can do lots of good things, and a non-Christian is someone who can't do any good things. But that's not at all what Paul is trying to say. Nor does that make any sense when you look at real life. There are plenty of non-Christians who do good things all the time. There are plenty of people from other religions who give to the poor, you know, who pray, who, who serve God, who does good things. So what does Paul mean when he says in verse 8 that those who are not Christians can't please God? Well, here's where remembering verses 1 to 4 is really important. Who is God? When Paul here says they can't please God, who is God? Remember, he's not just this generic higher power up there. He is specifically the one and only triune God who's redeemed sinners. So when Paul says in verse 8 that non-Christians can't please God, he's not saying that non-Christians can't ever do anything good. He's saying that if you ask a non-Christian, hey, why are you doing these good things? You know, why do you do this? None of them will say, I'm doing these good things to please the one and only triune God who's redeemed me. They won't say that because they don't believe in that. And if they're not doing these good deeds for the one and only triune God who's redeemed them, how can they please him? You know, if, if, if I planned a fancy dinner, I paid a lot of money, you know, for the decorations, and I put a lot of time in planning this elaborate date, and I sacrificed a lot to make it happen, but I did it for another woman and not for my wife, will that be pleasing to my wife? Of course not. <laughs> And how silly would it be for me to say, you know, but look at all I've done. You know, look at all the flowers I've bought. Look at all the decorations I've bought. Look at all the time I've sacrificed to do all these things. My wife would probably say, I mean, that's great. But you weren't doing any of that for me. So how can that please me? In fact, you know what? It's actually making me really, really jealous. Because you're doing it for someone else. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, not because they can't ever do good things, but because the good things they do, all the sacrifices they make, all the religious duties they perform are not done unto the one and only triune God who's redeemed them. See, reading the passage this way redefines verses 5 to 8 
for us. This means that to be fleshly here isn't just describing a person who does a lot of bad things. It's also describing a person who does a lot of good things, but are not doing them unto the triune God who's redeemed them. And it also redefines what it means to be spiritual. It isn't primarily about doing a lot of religious and good spiritual things all the time. It's that. But it's primarily about doing good religious deeds that are directed to the triune God who's redeemed you. So, here, simply put, the mark of the Christian, Paul is saying here, is not how much good things you've done. That's a category to think about, but it's not the main test. It's more, why do you do them, and to whom are you doing it to? That's the key. If you've done a lot of a lot of good things, but they're not done unto the one and only triune God, that's fleshly. But if you've done some good things, no matter how small of an amount they may be, if you've done some good things driven by the fact that the triune God has redeemed you and you're doing it unto the glory of the triune God who's redeemed you, then no matter how small those good deeds may be, Paul is saying, that's a sign that you've been freed by the Spirit because a fleshly man can't ever do that. The Spirit must first set you apart, set you free in order for you to be able to do that. You can only worship the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit if the Spirit has first set you free through the Son to the glory of the Father. That's what Paul is claiming here. You can only be born again, you can only be a true worshiper, and you can only please God through the Son, by the power of the Spirit, if the Spirit has first set you free through the Son to the glory of the Father. And if this has happened to you, if the Spirit has set you free through the Son to the glory of the Father, you will never again be unfree. You won't, which leads us to our last point. A Christian is someone who's been made holy by the triune God to do good works unto the triune God, because in them resides the spirit of this triune God. Last point. So this whole time, Paul's been describing salvation uh, to be this kind of realm of freedom, this realm of life, this realm of no condemnation that the Holy Spirit has set you apart into. Okay, you see the beginning of verse 9 there. You, however, are not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. See, you are in the spirit. You're described as being the thing that's inside the spirit of life, in this realm of, of life, okay? But that's not quite the complete picture yet. If we continue on to the second part of verse 9, Paul completes the picture, that the Holy Spirit is not just this knight in shining armor that frees you from darkness into his kingdom, but he's also described as a resident that's settled inside of you. Look, look at the end of verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So not only are you in the Spirit, but the Spirit is also in you. In other words, the Holy Spirit here, Paul is saying, is not just in the business of expanding His kingdom. He's also in the business of personal relationships. To indwell in you means to be permanent resident within you. Now, remember earlier I said all this stuff is meant to make the Christian more assured of their salvation? 
okay? This is how. Um, if you remember the letter of Romans that Paul wrote here, it was written to a church in Rome, right? And if you remember that those churches in, in Rome had two different groups of people in them, okay? So there was non-Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, and there were Jewish Christians, you know? And I can just imagine the non-Jewish Christian receiving this letter from Paul and, and, and reading it, and they're saying something like this, okay, the Spirit of God dwells in me, you know, that's, that's awesome, I'm thankful for that, that's really great. And then she looks at her Christian friend who's in the same church, but she came from a Jewish background, and her face at this point of the letter is an absolute shock, you know, her mouth is open, and, and she's just in awe of what Paul is saying. And the non-Jewish Christian asks, wow, okay, I mean, this is a big deal. The Spirit of God is in us. That's great, but why are you this shocked? And, and, and the Jewish Christian responds, see, you don't quite get it. You don't quite get it. Back then in the Old Testament, when our forefathers would set camp, the Jewish Christian starts to explain. When our forefathers would set camp as they were traveling to the Promised Land, the camp was kind of made in concentric circles, you see. Uh, the outskirt of the camp, there were a lot of Gentiles and non-Jews there, okay? And then as you go closer to the middle of the camp, that's when you start seeing the Jews. And then at the very middle of the camp, at the, at the vocal point of the camp, were the priests, the high priests, and the temple of God where God's spirit would reside. And, and as you move in closer and closer to the middle of the camp, to the temple where God's spirit was in, everything became more and more sacred, you know? Real estate prices start to increase. Yeah, I don't know. The, the point is, there's a weight in the camp as you go more and more to the middle. Why? Because God's spirit is there. Okay, says the Gentile Christian. What's your point? Don't you see? The Jewish Christian continues. And imagine at this point, you know, she would have found it very hard to even say the words because what she's about to say can almost feel borderline heretical to her Jewish senses. Don't you see? If what Paul is saying is true, the same spirit who in the book of Psalms ordered the constellations the same spirit who in the book of Exodus shook Mount Sinai and covered it with flames. The same spirit in the Old Testament that resided in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, in the center of the camp. That spirit is in me. And it's in you. And at that very moment of realization, as they looked at each other, considering what it is that they actually possess in them, all of a sudden, everything starts to click. Any sense of racial superiority that the Jewish lady might have felt toward her Gentile sister in Christ would begin to dwindle down under the power of this truth. And any sense of insecurity that the Gentile Christian would have perhaps felt about being in that church that has a majority of Jewish Christians would have shriveled down because she too possessed the Holy Spirit in her. Forgiveness, love, 
and unity, concepts that might have felt like long-lost memories in this church, begin to find new life as they are reminded of this absolutely staggering truth that the Spirit of God is in all who receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Jews, Gentiles, Chinese-Indonesian, non-Chinese-Indonesian, white, black, English speakers, non-English speakers, rich, poor, male, female, young, old, anyone in whom the Spirit has set free. That powerful Spirit is in you. And by the way, you know what else the Spirit did? He didn't just set apart Moses' staff or reside in the Old Testament temple or shake Mount Sinai in flames or order the constellations. You know what he did in verse 11? He raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Not with a temporary resurrection, but with a final one, an everlasting one. And that's why you, Christian, can be sure that your salvation is final and everlasting as well. Because Paul says in verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There doesn't seem to be much hesitance in Paul's words there. If the spirit of Christ is in you now, you will be resurrected. It will happen. You will get to the finish line. But what if I mess up? (laughs) You might ask, you know, what if I fail? What if I stumble along the way? Please, Paul here is asking us, please stop making this about you. (laughs) The Father will bring you to the end because the Son has paid the cost and because the Spirit has set you free and taken residence within you. It's not about you getting to the finish line. If that's the case, then you would get the applause. This is about the triune God getting you to the finish line so that he can applaud his own work and crown his own accomplishments of bringing undeserving sinners like me and like you to his heavenly abode. It's not about us. We are undeserving participants who at the end of our lives will look back and realize that the whole thing was a production that was written, executed, and paid for by the one and only triune God. And we will then simply fall down in worship and sing for eternity, praise the Father, praise the Son, and praise the Spirit, three in one. And you know, you can begin to do this now because the Spirit of Christ is already in you, Paul says. Right now, you can please the triune God. See, your good deeds, Christian, and, and your religious worship and your acts of service, it can please him now because you've been set free. Paul's, um, 
Paul's explicit goal here in Romans 8 is to assure the Roman Christian of their eternal salvation. That, that is the main explicit goal. But his implicit goal, I, I believe, is to encourage them to live faithfully amidst the Roman persecution, regardless of the cost, because of the eternal assurance that they have. You see, even if the cost was death under the sword of Roman soldiers. And so it is for you and I today. Whatever increase of assurance in salvation that you might have experienced through this passage, that power is not meant to be static power. It's meant to drive us to live bolder for this triune God, no matter the cost, because your eternity has been secured by this triune God who did pay a great cost. Live, therefore. Obey, be faithful, because this world is but a passing shadow, and because eternity is no longer just a reality that exists out there, but he is a reality that resides in you. Live now. Serve, give, do good deeds, submit to the laws of this triune God. You can please him. And let us spend our lives doing just that. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and have the audacity to even pray like this and worship like this and open up your word like this and sit under it like this because we know that your son has paid for the cost in which now has caused us to have no more condemnation. And we can understand that gospel truth because your spirit was sent by you to free us and to set us apart and to make us realize and understand that truth. And here now we sit under the utter dependence and mercy of this triune God of you. And I pray but the truths in which you have said in your word would be taken uh, to heart by your people because your spirit is merciful to do so. And as you increase the assurance we have about our salvation, help us then live bolder in this momentary earth for you, the eternal God, three in one. Let your glory be all our eyes are set upon and let the glitters and the lights of this momentary world slowly dim away under the wonderful light of your mercy and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.